Well, good morning. Man, welcome to our second 9 a.m. service. Great to see you. Yes. Um, here's what's awesome about it this morning, and we weren't really sure uh, how setup was going to go. And so I want to honor some people. This morning, uh, what you need to know is there's a crew that got here at 7 a.m. And we're trying, we normally get here at 7.30 for our 10.30 service that we had. And we thought if we work really hard and if we get just the smartest people we have in our church, uh, and if they show up, we can just move it back a half hour. And, and we did it this morning, and we had some different uh, road bumps that happened along the way. And our crew that set up this morning got it set up a half hour early. Isn't that amazing? Anyways, I wanted to say thank you, guys. If you, uh, yeah. For those, is anybody in here that helped set up this morning that's like awake? Are you here? Anyone? You're awake? Stand up. Just, let's just honor you real quick. And the band, cool. Oh, it's a big deal. I mean, it is a big deal as we have, um, I'm just amazed at the quality of people God's brought to this church. That you go, man, we're, we're going to wake up early on a Sunday morning to set up so that we can come and gather together and experience uh, Jesus. And so the band and everyone else, man, great, great job. Joy, joy to get to do this with you. Hey, let me pray, and we'll dive in this morning. Jesus, thank you for bringing us. Thanks for this moment. Thanks for the time to stop and simply sing to you. Father, I ask that you would speak clearly to us, that you would get me out of the way, and that you would speak through me, that we would hear from you. And as a result, God, this city would be changed because we dare to live out the lives you're calling us into. In Jesus' name, amen. If you got your notes, go ahead and grab them, open them up. We're starting a new series this morning called Revolution, and we're going to be spending a good amount of time in the Gospel of Mark, and I'm going to try to do some things I've not done before. Uh, a little bit later on in the message, I'm really going to geek out on you and kind of my personal geeking out and historical uh, context and and some of those sort of things. And so if you like that stuff, this is a great morning for you. If you don't, I apologize uh, there. But we're starting a series called Revolution. Uh, Webster defines a revolution this way. Uh, the overthrow or repudiation of a regime or political system. Uh, Dictionaries.com this way. A sudden, extreme, or complete change in the way people live, work, and uh, think, uh, or etc. It's a sudden and complete change. And, and the reality is, uh, we don't use this word a lot, but we've experienced multiple revolutions in our lives. We, we've experienced them over and over. I, I think a, one of the first major revolutions that we've experienced was the revolutions uh, from dependence to independence. It really started, remember in those high school years, you began to revolt against the regime of dependence against your parents. You remember this, right? And then eventually you found freedom, you know, the kingdom and the reign of independence came that freshman year of college, right? 
And some of us experienced that kingdom so freely that it soon shut down and we ended up back at our parents' house in the regime of dependence, right? But I mean, it's one of those things that was a major, sudden, complete change. You think about when you, for those who have gotten married, this sudden, complete change and this revolution from this world from me to we, and that like happens overnight. All of a sudden you say, we, uh, whoa, we, whoa, it's we? Hang on, hang on a second. It's always been me. I've always made decisions in terms of me. It's all about me. And now it's we? I, gotta, I can't just make, you know, plans with the boys. I got to call you first. It's this sudden, sudden, massive revolution. And, and what I've found in my own life is, is there are certain questions that lead to revolutions. Certain questions in life that if you have the courage to ask them or to step into them will forever change or alter your life. Um, 14 years ago, around this time, I met this incredibly beautiful blonde-haired girl uh, who brought pineapple fried rice to an event, and I just love food, and, and she was holding this pineapple that was gutted out with fried rice, and I saw her, and I said, wow, talk about a revolutionary moment in my life. I, I said, I don't know her name, but I want to. And so I, I wasn't really into fruit and fried rice, but she made it, so I'm going to eat it, you know. So I, I go over, and I'm like, I, I don't even know how I started the conversation, except that it was around food, and that's an area I'm quite comfortable with. And I was like, hey. And she's perhaps one of the most gracious human beings and conversational people on the planet. So in that moment, we stood around, and she's been holding her pineapple fried rice for a half an hour, and we just were talking. And I was just like, wow, this girl is beautiful. I, I, she's just beautiful. And, and she talked to me. <laughs> this is awesome. And so for the whole rest of the summer, I tried my darndest to figure out how to spend time with this beautiful blonde and, and as much time as I could. I mean, because it was in this moment and just seeing her that I just went like, wow, I was blown away. And I mean, over the summer, like my friends, I, my group of guy friends, I remember them like talking about like, hey, do you know that Jenny girl? I'm like, yeah. I was thinking about like asking her to, you know, to date. And then one of my other friends was going, yeah, me too. I'm like, shut up. You know, I would do anything to like hang out with her. I remember I lived in SoCal and she lived in Scotts Valley. She worked at a coffee shop that used to be named Abouchet, but now it's called Pete's Coffee. Um, anyways, kind of broke my heart. But I would get up early in the morning, she opened, and I'd drive from Soquel to Scotts Valley like at 6 a.m. And, and just to be there when she opened. Weird creeper, I know, but I just couldn't. Like one time she invited me to go uh, bowling with them, but I was leading worship for our high school ministry, and I had a whole bunch of high schoolers show up on a Saturday night, and that was, we're at church, and she's like, hey, do you want to go bowling? And I just turned to these high school kids who don't have cars, whose parents dropped them off, and I said, hey, guys, we're going to have to practice in the morning. <laughs> and I mean, I just bolted on them, and... and <laughs> 
And that was before cell phones, right? I mean, they had to, I'm sure, I'm sure their parents were real thrilled. By the end of that summer, I was like, okay, I got to figure out. She's going to Cal Poly, and I'm going uh, to school in Chicago, and I got to figure out how to stay in contact with her. And so uh, at the end of it, I was like, hey, you know, it'd be kind of nice to, um, it'd be kind of nice to stay, you know, to chat or stay in contact. And, and so I got her email address, you know, and I'm like, all right. And so I was all excited. I'm in Chicago. She's in, uh, in St. Louis. And and I email her this first email, and I mean, you know, my heart's pounding, everything's like thudding, I'm just like all excited, and I hit send. Now, now, granted, uh, we didn't, this is like, I've, this is my first like computer I ever had, this was a big deal that I owned a computer. My wife didn't own a computer, the way she did computers is she did have to go to the computer lab to do that. I'm just giving a little context for those who weren't around when we didn't have computers at our access or on our phones. Uh, and so I hit send, and then like a month and a half later, I got a reply from her. I mean, like for a month, I am dying checking the email every single day. Did she give it, like even multiple times. Did she email now? Did she email now? And then all of a sudden, I get this email. I'm like, whoa, the Shekinah glory of Jenny showed up. And I'm like, yes. And so I like... Email her right back like a month later. I was so mad. I was so frustrated. And here I'm at a school in Chicago in this killer town. And, and I just couldn't get um, my mind off of this girl from back home, this beautiful blonde. I just couldn't get my mind off her. And yet I was really frustrated because she wouldn't email me back in a timely manner. And there was like some really nice girls around at school. And I'm like, man, God, I, I, I just want her to get off my mind. And I want to hang out. I'm at college. This should be a, an awesome time. And so one day, and I don't suggest doing this, by the way, but it worked. Uh, one day out of like frustration, I said, fine, God. If you're not going to get her off my mind, then I'm going to fast and pray to marry her. Yeah, weird, I know, okay? <laughs> it's okay, you don't ever have to do this, but it worked, okay? I'm just saying, it works. Guys, you might wanna take notes. No, seriously, so, I, I mean, weirdo, I know. I was in Chicago, I remember this, I fasted and prayed for like a day, and I said, God, if you won't take her off my mind, I wanna marry her then. And we're not even dating, I'm getting like a response like once a month from this blonde-haired girl? And so, day comes where we're finally going to hang out. Uh, we're back in the same town. It's over Christmas break, uh, and we're together, and we had this awesome time. Uh, I was, like, so excited to spend with her, and at her coffee shop, we kind of had set up our first official but not official date, you know, we hadn't quite defined it, and at the coffee shop, and I fill out the, uh, I, I, I'm a napkin writer, if anybody hangs out with me, you'll see me write on a napkin, and so I draw her nap, uh, directions on napkin to my house, I'm all excited, all right, she's going to come, that was before we had GPS and, you know, all those map quests and all that stuff, right, uh, and so she comes over, and again, this is like the worst way, so it, this is like how not to do dating, okay? But she comes over to the house, 
And my dad was the pastor of the large church in town. I grew up as a pastor's kid. My dad, and like the big church in town. And so it was kind of intimidating to come to my house. My dad's kind of an intense guy. Great, great guy. But he's always just, you know, like, hey, I'm going to tell you how it is. And so it was like intense to come over. She comes over. And as she comes over, I was like, hey, come on in. Because I, 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 I had big hopes for this relationship. She comes in and she sits down. And like gets interviewed by my parents. We're not dating yet, by the way, guys. We haven't gotten there. And she's like, this is weird. My dad is sitting by the fire. My mom's on the other side. And they're like, come on in, you know. (laughs) She sits down, have this conversation. And our date, our first date was going Christmas shopping, okay. Real romantic. I, I figured out on the back end, we, we went Christmas shopping, and then we went and got mochas from Mr. Toots, and then walked along West Cliff Drive, looked at the stars, and we had an awesome night, hit it off. And then at the end of the night, and our stories differ, okay? So my story's a little different than hers. But, but the way mine goes, the way mine goes is that at the end of the night, we hug to say goodbye. We're out of the car in front of my house, and we hug to say goodbye. And the way my story goes is that she hugged for a really long time and wouldn't let go. And, and I didn't know what to do with that. And so I was sitting there going, okay, I wonder how long this hug's going to last. So I might as well interrupt it with one courageous question. And my question was really simple and to the point. And if you know me, I'm pretty simple and just to the point. And so as we're hugging and under the starlit sky and it's beautiful, we just had this amazing time. I go, so, do you want a date? It's like, just that. Like, and she looks at me and says, no. <laughs> no, that's the end of my story. <laughs> The next day, the next day, she called and she's like, you know, just caught me off guard a little bit, but yeah, I really do want a date. Yeah, oh, isn't that great? Oh, sweet. Isn't it true for you and for me that there are certain questions in life that lead you to places you never expected, that bring about a revolution, That question on that night forever altered the direction of my life. 14 years later, we've been married 11 of those plus change and have three kids. We've lived in three different states. And he started uh, and I was going like, I couldn't imagine my life without her. And in a moment under a starlit sky, under the weirdest circumstances possible, I asked one crazy, courageous question that changed everything. It was a revolution. And in the next, this next series, we're going to be talking about four questions That if you have the courage to ask them, will create a revolution of the heart. That will change you dramatically from the inside out. And in fact, the Christian life is this way. is not that you somehow figure out how to live out here. It is to allow the work of God to do something deep inside of you. And as he does that, it will transform and revolutionize your world out there. But it always begins here in a revolution of the heart.
And so we're going to take the next four weeks and ask four critical questions, four questions that if you ask them, will completely, radically revolutionize your life. The questions will allow you to experience the life you were created to experience, the life God's calling and beckoning you into, the life you were made to live. Remember, a sudden revolution, a sudden, extreme, complete change in the way people live, work, or think. Uh, The first question we're going to ask this morning is at the very center of the Gospel of Mark. Like, literally, it's at the very center. Like, Mark is 16 chapters, and, uh, and so at chapter 8, verse 29, Jesus asks this question. But it's not just at the center, literally, thematically. This question is the theme of the entire book. In fact, it is so thematic through it, throughout the entire book, that he goes ahead at the very first sentence, Mark 1, verse 1, uh, he answers this question as clearly as he can. In fact, the first verse of Mark is a summary statement of the entire book and answers this one critical question that if you have the courage to ask, will bring about a revolution in your heart and life. The question is simply this. Jesus turned to his disciples and asked this question. In the face of some intense ministry, He asked this to them, who do you say I am? I mean, the question really, who is Jesus? Who is he really? We have to settle and answer that question. In fact, let's do this. Let's do um, a, a little exercise. We'll be family for a second. If you could, in one word, sum up who Jesus is, what one word would you use to describe him? What is the one singular word that you would use to describe Jesus? Go ahead, just turn to the person next to you and just tell them your one word. Go for it. Yeah, you can talk in church. It's okay. All right, what, what words did we come up with? God, good, good. No, that's great. Jesus, that's like the Sunday school answer, right? We sum them up as Jesus, like, okay. All right, no, what else? Savior, absolutely, what a great, he is Savior. Oftentimes we read that Savior of the world. What else? Creator, yeah. And Paul really talks about that, that he, he created and sustains all things. Think about that, Jesus as creator. What else? Christ. What's that mean? That's okay. That's okay. We're actually going to unpack that. So I'm glad you said that. He is the Christ. He is the, in the Hebrew word, Messiah. Uh, and what that means is anointed one. We'll, we'll talk about that in a second, but he absolutely is. What else? I'm sorry to put you on the spot. What else? Carpenter, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we all know that from uh, Meet the Parents. JC was a carpenter too. Anybody? You didn't? No, okay, we'll pass your time. Okay. What else? Huh? King. King. Yeah, absolutely. King. It's amazing these words we use for him. 
And, and we answer that question, who is Jesus? And if he was here and if he was standing right here and he asked you, who do you say I am? One of the words that I think Mark would want us to describe and is moving towards that isn't necessarily at the tip of our tongue is Jesus was a revolutionary. See, what if, what if Jesus didn't come to institute a new religion? A new rules to relate to God. What if he came to start a revolution? See, remember our definition of revolution, Webster, the overthrow or repudiation of a regime or political system. When Paul talks about what is so significant for you and and for me in this transfer uh, of becoming a follower of Jesus, he says it in, in revolutionary terms. He says that you have transferred, you have transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of the son he loves. There is an overthrow of a regime and a system. And he says that regime and system that once brought death and destruction and hopelessness and slavery, you have been brought out of that. Jesus is a revolutionary that has taken you from the kingdom of darkness and hopelessness hopelessness into the kingdom of the son he loves where there's hope and life and where he restores all things and brings grace. See, a lot of times in our definition, in our estimation, we say these words and we go, he was a good guy. But if we answer it indeed in the words we use that he is savior, that he's God, that he's king, it has massive implications for our life, doesn't it? You can't say he's king and not bend the knee to the king. You can't say he's God and not go, you're in control, have your way. You can't say he's savior and keep living as if you're trying to save yourself. See, one of the most fundamental questions that will bring about a revolution of the heart is answering clearly this question. For yourself, not for others and not intellectually, but who do you say he is? Mark opens up his gospel this way. The beginning of the good news, the beginning of the gospel about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, here's what I want you to know about that line, and I want to unpack it, and I'm going to geek out on you for a second, okay? Uh, because this is the stuff like I love, like just my personality. I love reading like theology books. Those are really fun. And for some of you are going, that just sounds like purgatory. Thank you very much. And so I'll try to make it as entertaining as possible. But what you need to know is that line from Mark, that line 
That line was treason. That line was as significant as the Declaration of Independence was for America to the oppressing Britain, British government. I hope there's no English people here. Uh, it was a revolutionary statement. To understand it, and in fact, in hermeneutics, hermeneutics is just simply the, uh, the science and art of studying the Bible. It's, it's how do we go about studying the Bible. And, and one of the rules that we have in hermeneutics and how we study the Bible is simply this, is that we must first understand how the first audience, the, the original readers understood this and then begin to translate it for how we interpret and understand it. And, and so we read this and it comes with all this baggage that we have of growing up and maybe hearing it in church or hearing it, you know, used in maybe curse words, Jesus Christ, okay. And it has all this baggage, but how did the original audience hear this line, the beginning of the good news of Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God? Let me give you a little bit of historical background. And you got it in your notes here. And, and as we do, my hope and prayer is that this passage will come to life in ways that it hasn't uh, before. The author we know of the book of Mark is actually Mark. And now nowhere in the book is it identified of who the author is, but we have early church fathers and a lot of external witnesses that attribute it to Mark. Uh, This Mark specifically is a guy named John Mark. His home was in Jerusalem. Uh, We most, most likely his home was used as the last supper uh, for Jesus. And that night his home was a base in Jerusalem for the church. Uh, His uncle was a guy named Barnabas, and Barnabas was known as the encourager. And so Barnabas, so when Jesus was doing the Last Supper, uh, sorry, I backed up there for a little bit there. When Jesus was doing the Last Supper, John Mark was probably a young uh, teenage kid taking all this in. And then uh, Barnabas, his uncle, took him on some missionary journeys with Paul. And then Peter the apostle Peter took him under his wing and John Mark became his interpreter. And much of what we know of the book of Mark is from Peter's teaching. That's the author, the audience that Mark's writing to most likely John Mark is writing in uh, the province of Italy, specifically, most likely Rome. But we know that the audience that he's writing to are Gentile Christians in Rome. And the reason we know that they're Gentile Christians is you'll, as we read through the book of Mark, what you'll notice is that he'll, he'll use an Aramaic word and then he'll begin to explain it and unpack it because his audience doesn't immediately understand the, the Jewish uh, phrases. And so they're Gentile Christians who are in Rome who are undergoing intense persecution under the reign of Nero. Now Nero, this... this um, the Emperor Nero uh, has been called crazy for very good reasons, and he went insane uh, through the good portion of his um, reign. Uh, and he had a construction project that he wanted to do in Rome, and to accomplish that, he lit his own city on fire so that he could kind of wipe out some stuff and start afresh. Now, rumors swirled, and he tried to get it that, oh, off of him. R- rumors swirled that he had indeed uh, lighted the fire, and he tried to pay people off, and he couldn't quite do it, and so he began to blame the Christians. And, and we know this, actually, not because there's uh, the historical documents of Christians, per se, but even the Roman uh, historian Tacitus 
writes this. In fact, would you, I just find this so interesting. I just want to read this. Tacitus, in his annals of the Roman history, writes this. Neither all human endeavor nor imperial largus, which I had to look up as generosity, uh, nor all the modes of placating the gods could stifle the scandal or banish the belief that the great Roman fire had taken place by order. Therefore, to Scott's rumor, Nero substituted as culprits the punished uh, with the utmost exquisite cruelty, a class loathed for their abominations, whom the, whom the crowd styled Christians. Accordingly, arrest was first made of those who confessed to be Christians. Next, on the disclosure that they were Christians, vast numbers were convicted, not so much on the charge of arson as for hatred of the human race. Now listen to this. Every sort of derision was added to their deaths. They were wrapped in skins of wild beasts and dismembered by dogs. Others were nailed to crosses. Others, when daylight failed, were set afire to serve as lamps by night. Nero had offered his gardens for the spectacle uh, and gave an exhibition in the circus, mingling with people in costumes of the chariot of a chariot charioteer. Oh, sorry. Uh, or mounted on a car. Hence, even for criminals who merited extreme and exemplary punishment, there arose a feeling of pity due to the impression that they were being destroyed, not for the public good, but to gratify the cruelty of a single man. Roman historian Tacitus writes this. This is the context, the background in which John, or John Mark is writing. To the, those who called themselves followers of Jesus in Rome. To say that you are a follower of Jesus, to confess that publicly, meant that you in all likelihood would be pulled and ripped from your home, beaten, tortured, publicly humiliated, perhaps burned, crucified, thrown into the center of the arena for sport to let animals take oh, you. Yeah. Now, if I was going to start a story, I would first start with, hey guys, why don't you get out of there? This is crazy. Are you serious? And, and what John Mark starts with, with words that written into the center of the heart of the empire are words that considered to be treason to the empire. He says this, and you know you have it. The beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Son of God. And he starts off this phrase, the beginning, and it's literally the word archaic. It brings us back to the Genesis account of how uh, the very first book uh, we have starts, in the beginning, God created. And he's saying what has begun here in the person of Jesus is as significant and weighty as what happened in the creation of the cosmos. There is the same reality that there is that happened in Genesis. In the beginning, God 
God created and he spoke and all things came into existence. And then here there is a new creation that God is up to. In fact, we find in the cosmos or in the beginning of the origins of uh, the cosmos, we, we see the first man, Adam, and through him came death and destruction. And God says, I'm doing a recreation, a new creation. And it comes through the new man, Jesus. In the beginning, there was a death that came here and now there is life. There is a weight and significance here for uh, Mark. Uh, in fact, one theologian writes this, for Mark, the introduction of Jesus is no less momentous than the creation of the world. For in Jesus, a new creation is at hand. And he says this, here's what the beginning is. The beginning of the gospel. Some of your translations say good news. Some say gospel. Is the word euangelion. Now, we primarily understand this word as a religious term, as a Christian term. We've heard it, uh, you know, someone saying, you know, have you heard the gospel? In their day, they heard it completely different. In the Hebrew writing, it was used as a word that carries power and effect on whatever it proclaims. Like, bad news brings sorrow, and so good news causes joy. The euangelion, it just caused joy. Uh, in Greeks, it was actually a technical term uh, for uh, news of victory. And so there was this news of victory. If you're out on the battlefield and you won, you would send a runner out and he would declare the euangelion, we've won, we've won. It was this, this declaration of we defeated the enemy. And then it got translated. Now, remember, this is in Rome, in the heart of the empire, of the Roman empire. Later, it got translated into the imperial cult. In the imperial cult of Rome, the emperor is divine by nature. His power extends to men, to animals, to the earth, and to the sea. He's known as the savior of the world, appearing on earth as deity in human form. He's the protective god of the state. Every citizen within the Roman territory must declare Caesar is Lord. What he says is a divine act and implies good and salvation for men. The euangelion was celebrated with offerings and yearly festivals. When a new emperor, when a new Caesar came into power, there was a public declaration of the euangelion that a new age has begun and the good of man and that God has visited the planet through this man, this emperor. And there's this divine appointment. And you think, uh, now notice Mark is writing and he's taking it head on and addressing the issues of the day and what they're having to stand against of saying, you know what? The guy who is persecuting you really doesn't have the power. He's not the euangelion. News that causes joy. See, there's a new kingdom and there's a new life and there's a new way to go about and it doesn't use force. It uses love. And his name is not Caesar, but Jesus. It says, the beginning, this is a creative act, a new creation of the gospel, the good news of who? Of Jesus, the Messiah. Jesus, the word Yeshua, 
literally means Yahweh saves. The good news that God has saved, that God has come. And Messiah, what we're talking about, and Christ. A lot of times we think Christ is Jesus' last name. It's not. um, It's not his last name. It's a title. There was this long-awaited hope of Israel that God would one day restore all things to their rightful place and that no longer would Israel be under the oppressive regime, but they would once more be restored and their God would be their king and the Messiah would come and do this. And so when Israel heard this, they heard this not so much of a spiritual savior, but as a physical savior. In fact, I want you to, as we read through the book of Mark, when you see the word kingdom and the kingdom of God is at hand. When they heard it, they didn't think about heaven. They thought about God's kingdom breaking forth now and that Israel would be restored to the rightful place. One commentator writes this, uh, for the Greek speaking Jews of Jesus' day, Christ or Messiah was a title of the one anointed by God to carry out specific tasks uh, related to the liberation of Israel. And what Mark starts when he answers the question, who is this man? Who is Jesus? Says that he is the new creation that is bringing forth the greatest news this planet has ever heard that confronts the realities and the darkness of today. And his name is Jesus because he came to save and redeem and bring life. He is the long-awaited, anointed one who has been foretold of long ago. And he closes it out this way, the son of God. The son of God. Now, now, if what he wrote so far wasn't a slap in the face to the Roman Empire, this was the cherry on top. You see, the son of God was a title the ruling emperor would use for himself. In fact, up here you can see it imprinted on the the coinage and currency of the day. uh, You see this Caesar Augustus uh, in his uh, face and on the back you see in Greek uh, where it says son of God. God, it was his title. And, and, and you just got to see this. Mark, from the very outset, from the very outset, wanted to say Jesus didn't come to make your life comfortable. He came to set you free and for you to experience a revolution of the heart that influences all of life. In a single sentence, Mark sums up the entire gospel clearly, succinctly, and uncompromisingly answers the question, who is Jesus? In the face, in the face of incredible opposition, in the face of a time when it's incredibly unpopular. There are some questions that if you have the courage to ask them, 
They'll lead you on an unexpected journey. In fact, they'll bring about a revolution. How about for you? I know in here that we can all come up with the right answer. But isn't it time? Isn't it time for those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus to really answer that with a clarity and a conviction, understanding the implications when we answer this single one question, who do you say I am? See, answering this question, Answering this question, and if you answer it the way Mark answers it, will shift you from simply giving him lip service to giving him life service. If indeed he is the Son of God, the Messiah, the long-awaited one, the new creation who has come to bring life. Answering this will change the reality that no longer do we go to church and we sit in seats, but we are the church. And everywhere we go, we are the church and we are bringing his kingdom and his light everywhere we go. Eleven years ago, four months, and... uh, Five days. I stood at the front of a church and I was asked a question. That beautiful girl that I, uh, that I met over pineapple fried rice stood there in beautiful white. And the pastor, who was my dad, which was awesome, and as a classic preacher, he preached, and he went about an hour long, which was a little long. But, uh, I mean, I, I was a mess, by the way, guys. I mean, I just cried. I was so bad. I mean, like the whole time, like my brothers who were uh, on my grooms guys, groomsmen, and they were like handing me like tissue after tissue. Eventually, they just gave me the box. Shouldn't it, it's supposed to be the, the woman that cries, but I think, but it was me. She was, she was good. I got asked this question. Do you take this woman to be your lawful wedded wife? Do you? See, there's a massive difference. There's a massive difference between Jenny as my girlfriend and Jenny as my wife. Up until that point, until that question was asked, we related fundamentally differently. We stood there, asked this question. In that moment, she was no longer that beautiful blonde across that I was pursuing. She was no longer her friend, even though she still is. She was no longer my girlfriend. She became something completely different, and it was an incredible question that I just simply had to respond to. Do you take her? She is now my 
wife. Who do I say she is? She is many things. She is beautiful. She is amazing. But she is my wife. And I got a ring to prove it. Could it be that some of us are in the dating stage with Jesus? And if we're asked that question real honestly, who do you say I am? We're still figuring it out. And by the way, there is a massive difference when you finally go, okay, you are the Christ, the anointed one, the son of God, the savior of the world and what you came and what you started is brand new and I need you. Come and make me new. So, as we close, for you personally, where you're at, who do you say he is? See, man, Messiah, good guy, or God? Is he just nice and he's a part or is he necessary for all of life? I actually just simply want to leave you with the question. I want to leave you with it in such a way that I hope that you ask it every single day. Who do I say he is really? Because how you answer that will change all of life. Let's pray. God, I, I just want to start with, I got to confess. Intellectually, I can answer the right words when we ask that question. But there are many times when I look at how I live, that my answer would be really different if I looked at how I really live, that you're a nice idea or you're good when life's hard, but when life's good, I got it. I'm sorry. God, would you make us a church? Would you make us a people who step into the reality that you are God, that you are good, that you love us, that you're for us, that you saved us, that you started something new and you long to do something amazing and revolutionary through us. God, would you start in this moment a revolution of the heart in each and every one of us. In Jesus' name, amen.